we meet again. Oh, how was it? Was the tour? Like? Yeah. Uh, it was a, a lot, actually. Uh, I didn't realize that we would have to actually be in a canoe to see the massive scale of what this mine is going to be. It was really intense to imagine, like, looking up over the trees and seeing dry stack tailings piled twice the height of the white pine or to imagine the hum of you know fans circulating air deep into mine shafts and even like tremors from you know little mini earthquakes caused by the mine it's pretty wild to imagine all that especially while sitting in the middle of wild rice yeah for sure do you think this is going to be uh the end of your knowledge seeking journey or are you feeling are you feeling more like you're resolved in this issue you you feel ready to fight this mine well i mean to be honest okay so part of me is like yeah wants to be like just let's move let's just start doing the work but there's also this part of me that it i mean i have this very skeptical part of me and to be honest like you both work for the campaign levi works for the campaign and you know, just to satisfy the skeptic, I think it would be helpful to talk to maybe somebody kind of more objective. Like, uh, I actually know this guy. He's a journalist, and uh, he I think he's been covering this stuff for quite a few years. And no offense, but I think he would probably maybe shoot straight with me if there's some things I need to know that you maybe wouldn't tell me. Hey, we encourage it. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah, totally. My name is Walker Orenstein. I'm a reporter for MinPost covering state government, and I've been following the Twin Metals mine for several years now. And so the main concern here would be a large copper and nickel mine in a waterway that flows into the boundary waters would eventually pollute the wilderness. There has been a pitched and fierce debate going back now decade over whether this company can actually mine safely or whether it will put the wilderness at risk. This has gone back and forth for a while. Uh, the Obama administration said that they thought it was such a risk of irreparable harm to the boundary waters that they canceled some mineral leases for the project. Um, and that decision was reversed under President Donald Trump. And now it's currently both in litigation and also just under consideration by President Joe Biden of where he'll go next. Um, though his agriculture secretary is the one who stopped the project under the Obama administration. So it's believed that he might act the same, though we don't know for sure. Um, but Joe Biden has also generally talked about a need for metals like copper, nickel, and cobalt um, during his presidency. So that's another wrinkle in the, in the decision-making tree here. You know, we have been mining for, for iron ore and taconite in northeastern Minnesota for a long time, but this is just a a different, a different animal, as it were. And it's not that iron mining has no environmental concerns, but you know, copper nickel mining has never been done in Minnesota. You know, it's got this potential to create this acidic runoff, and that could be uh, disastrous in some ways. Twin Metals has made it pretty clear they expect to be what they call like a zero discharge mine, meaning that they wouldn't release water that's sort of been uh, tainted during the mining process. They say they can meet state standards and federal standards on, on water pollution. Um, but there's a lot of people who are worried that, you know, mines 
copper nickel mines, sulfide mines, places that mine for gold and silver, these other types of metals really have a have a bad track record with leaks and spills. I'd say the studies show in the US, most of them um, do have a record of not meeting environmental standards, at least at times. Um, and so there is skepticism for that. Um, you know, what makes this mine any different? Matthew, you talked to Walker. How did that conversation go? It was good. Uh, he told me a lot of stuff that I think you both have shared with me. And, you know, he actually filled it out a little bit. He was really knowledgeable. And I have uh, questions from it, but uh, I'm figuring it out. Yeah, there's actually been a lot of coverage on the issue um, from, like, the New York Times to National Geographic. Uh, Vox did a video, and even the Star Tribune editorial board wrote an editorial about the issue. In addition to all the great press pieces, there's actually a really great book um, that kind of talks about the history of copper mining in the United States. If you want to take that sort of wider scope, it's, it's by uh, an author named Bill Carter, and it's called Boom, Bust, Boom. I'd highly recommend it. <laughs> Uh, it's actually really crazy you bring that up. Um, I picked that book up, I think, you know, a few years back when I wanted to learn a little bit more about, like, uh, you know, the difference between, like, copper nickel mining and iron ore and taconite and all that. And uh, I remember paging through it, and strangely enough, I probably should have brought this up earlier, but you guys built my confidence in, like, reaching out to people and learning more just independently. So I sent a email to his publisher and uh, totally surprisingly he decided that he would talk to me and uh, maybe do you want to actually hear what he said yeah I'd love to hear it okay let me preface this by saying one thing because I'd like to be really clear about this mining companies do hire the best there are they hire the best hydraulics They, they hire the best engineers they hire the best of everything that you think is necessary to build a mine or a tailings pile. I would never ever take that from them. And I think the people who they actually hire out of college are incredibly earnest about doing the best they can, right? Like they want to do the best tailings pile because they know it's a problem. I don't ever doubt that. I, I really don't. I've met them. The problem is it's like an equation they can never figure out and they can never let, be honest with you. The equation, let's say it's a very complex equation on the board. And there's an X, the unsolved X. I'm going to tell you what the X is. It's called Earth. And Earth is sometimes works against us. So if you build the most insanely high-tech, the most beautiful sand tailing pile that was ever dreamed up, it might win for X amount of time. But eventually, it's going to lose because things all decay. Things erode. We do not know what's going to happen. So the idea that this tailings pile now is the big solution, which they tend to have every 10 or 15 years, a new idea of a tailings pile. I wouldn't put my money on it being the ultimate solution, except for maybe like in the short term, 10, 20, 30 years. In the long term, no. And I tend to think we're at the core of us as a human race. We have to start thinking about being responsible for the people behind us, you know, and not just what works for us today. copper industry is trying to make a 
they have something visually interesting to the modern conversation, which is renewable energy, and they're trying to latch onto it to say, hey, we're going to save you from us. <laughs> we're going to save you from, uh, you know, the, the doom of fuel, of, of carbon. And, you know, you're like, okay, hooray, thank you, I appreciate that. But they don't really like to talk about the downside of copper mining. And the downside of copper mining is the elephant in the room. We don't argue the fact that copper is necessary for a greener earth. That is like a known, we know that. That is like, yes, it will be part of it. You need copper to run electricity. You need copper in electric cars. You need copper in wind turbine machines. You need copper in blah, 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 blah. That is the end result, that product. What they're not addressing is their ability to control the destruction of water sources and food sources anywhere near, anywhere near a copper mine. That part is what they're trying not to talk about by showing you the shiny object of like the solar panel, the elect, you know, the Prius, the Tesla, the whatever it is. And they're just talking about how they're going to help that, but they're still not talking about how they're going to destroy the place that is near the copper mine to make that. They're doing an old-fashioned shell game, not new. This is incredibly old in the mining business, as old as it gets. It looks different every other decade where maybe in, in northern Minnesota they're talking about, you know, Minnesota, be proud, be part of this. We're the green, you know, the infrastructure plan of Biden, they need us to do this. Um, that's nonsense, <laughs> only because there's lots of copper mines. And I, in my book, I argue, I don't argue against building copper mines. Because if you want to argue against building copper mines, you're literally saying we have to go back to this, to like, 150 years ago and kind of deal with like no electricity. So I'm not arguing that what I'm arguing and what I think is an argument people should be making at large is where do we decide to build a copper mine? It's not fighting against the mine because it's a mine. It's not fighting against the mining CEO because I don't like him or her. It's because it's, you're basically, if you can justify by saying this is the wrong place for a mine, if they think you're just anti-mining, they will find a way to discredit you a little bit because you just look like you're against everything that's about your, what you already have. You, you look like spoiled people, right? You look, you look like people who don't understand your own life. You drive a car, don't you? Okay. You're on a computer. Okay. You fly an airplane. Yes. So shut up. I mean, that's their opinion, right? That's how they think about you. And I think that if you can nuance your argument to, I understand about mining. I'm down. But what I'm asking this community so this politician is, do we really want to build the mine on the very corner of the, the boundary water? Like, does that make sense to you? Does that make sense to anybody here knowing that it will actually infect that water? Now, do we want to, as a state, allow that? And that, that argument, it, it actually hits a little deeper to them because you're not just anti-mining. And we are creeping into places that we didn't creep before, or at least people are living there now, like people meaning white people. Indigenous people have to deal with this, dealt with this nonsense forever, is that you're going to have a clash between whether we value clean water and clean food more than we value gold or, you know, lead or whatever we're talking about. And it would be a huge clash because it's already, it's already happening. Ely's a really good example of that because it is a known, safe, well-organized water for both recreational and just water. And now you want to put a mine on it which we scientifically know what will happen to that water. 
not maybe the whole water, but at least anywhere near it. And to say that it won't happen is literally ridiculous. The problem with mining companies is that they don't need to have a 20-year run how they speak because they're all going to be dead in 50 years when it actually starts to leak. They don't, mines don't leak in the first 10 or 20 years. And if they do, that is a horribly built mine. They, they start to have problems in the third decade or the fourth decade. And then the tailings pile collapses or it has a leak in the, you know, blah, 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 blah. It starts to happen. And the people who built it, the people who advertised, the people who pushed on you, they're long gone. It's a new board. And that's why this never, ever comes back to them, never haunts them. It's what, you know, they talk in short term because Americans think in short term. I'm not trying to, not trying to insult us all, but we have very short term memories. And so they know that, so they play upon that. This mine will never go bad in your lifetime. It might not, but it's going to go bad. And that short-term thinking is what will eventually, you know, it's like climate change. You know, short-term thinking is what's getting us caught with our pants down with wildfires and floods and everything else. We don't build infrastructure. That's really cool that you got to speak with Bill Carter. You know, he's been he spent decades writing about hard rock mining. And when you hear what he has to say and you... Uh, read everything he's written, it just becomes even more obvious that uh, this type of mine is just really inappropriate for uh, locations such as the Boundary Waters. Totally. And in addition to a lot of these authors and activists and other folks who are involved with the issue, there's also legislation happening at the state and federal levels to support this as well, um, including Betty McCollum's Boundary Waters Protection and Pollution Prevention Act, um, which I actually got to be in Washington, D.C. when she introduced it in January 2020, and she introduced it this year, but it's supposed to create a federal moratorium for mining on the areas surrounding the Boundary Waters. In addition to that, there's also an effort at the state level to introduce legislation here in Minnesota. Hi, I'm Kelly Morrison, state representative for District 33B in the Minnesota House. That includes 10 communities in the West Metro of Minneapolis. And I uh, became interested in legislation around protecting water um, when I joined the legislature. I'm a, actually a sixth generation Minnesotan. I have really deep roots in our state and I'm a lifelong lover of the Boundary Waters. And I've always been very proud of the, the great bodies of water that our state is blessed with. And when I got to the legislature and learned more about uh, what our permitting process entails and the threat of copper sulfide mining in our state, I became really concerned and got more interested in passing legislation that would do a better job of protecting our waters. I'm a physician outside of the legislature, and so I try to look through policy uh, through a public health lens and I also think it's important that we use the best available evidence to make policy and protecting our water and protecting the boundary waters uh, checks all those boxes. Copper sulfide mining in that area presents a threat to public health. Uh, it certainly presents a threat to this treasured wilderness area um, and the economy that surrounds it. And it presents a threat to the economy of the entire state. So that's how I became involved, and I'm very proud to uh, be the chief author of the Boundary Waters Permanent Protection Bill in the Minnesota House. 
I have a lot of personal memories uh, of the Boundary Waters. My husband, John, and I have been taking our three children on at least annual trips for the past 12 years. And we try to do a different trip every year. So we've had a variety of experiences in the Boundary Waters. My husband's a former Army Ranger, and he loves to plot out our trips. And we have maps that detail all of the different campsites that we've stayed at and all of the different lakes and rivers and streams and portages and uh, all of our our wonderful um, and varied trips in the Boundary Waters. The very first time we went to the Boundary Waters, we had a big tent and the five of us slept in that tent together. And we had a black bear come into our campsite. It was our first trip and we apparently had not put our bear bag up high enough. We thought we had. But this couple of bears got into our campsite and was able to get our bear bag down. And we watched from our tent until we sort of got up the courage to come out bagging pots and pans and off they went. But it wasn't until they had eaten most of our food. So we graduated to uh, barrels from bear bags. And that has worked so much better for us over the years. Um, But the wonderful thing about the tradition of taking your kids to the Boundary Waters and just being up there is multifold. The family time together, being separated from technology and phones and screens of all kinds, and just being able to be in that pristine wilderness and to listen to the quiet and listen to the noise of the natural world and to see that incredible sky and just to be still is something that many of us don't get to experience in our world anymore. And to preserve the ability for as many of us as possible to be able to experience that is, has never been more important in my mind. So I will, I will continue the fight to protect the boundary waters uh, and all water in our incredible state. I'm learning a lot about this place, the Boundary Waters, in a whole different way than I have. But so much of my experience of the wilderness has been deeply personal and really life-changing. I actually left my whole world and home in Minneapolis, a career that I had built to be here. And I think a lot of other people have also had to make that really hard decision to move their entire lives up north to be in proximity to the wilderness to find something more meaningful. I know those people are out there. I'm going to find them. <laughs>